So this will be our, our last talk uh, on this retreat, and the title is uh, For Love of This World. Some days ago, I mentioned my friend who wrote to me saying, well, perhaps Buddhism, the Dhamma, um, is just beginning rather than something that is very ancient and reverent and from a distant, distant past and culture. And I said that it's very relative, really, measuring these expanses of time um, relative to our own relatively short life. But if you were to take uh, a human life to, let's say, be 80 years, which is the age the Buddha lived to, and string 80 lifetimes back to back from the time of the Buddha until today, it would only come to 30 people. Three zero. Half the people in this room would cover two and a half thousand years. And if you look at it that way, it really doesn't seem very long at all, especially if you are of a certain age. <laughs> and you no longer have the idea that human life is very long, nor that human life passes slowly. <laughs> then it suddenly clicks into a different picture. The Buddha did not live that long ago, really. And again, who are we to say how long his ideas or his teachings will continue to unfold and develop in ways that we probably can't foresee uh, into the future? So I think we sh should question this sense of antiquity and in a way thereby understand perhaps why it is that so many of what so much of what he says in these texts rather weirdly speaks to our condition today. People have not really changed much at all. What I want to share with you today are some more uh, foundational texts for secular Buddhism. Texts that also we might think of as part of Buddhism 2.0. In other words, the canonical uh, passages that seem to support and underpin um, a more secular reading. In other words, a reading that is concerned with, with this world, that arise out of an aspiration to find a framework for practicing, for living, um, out of our concern, out of our love for the place, this planet where we live. I think probably one of the most uh, core passages that supports a secular reading is a short sutta uh, in the Sangyutta Nikaya, uh, 3523, called the Sabha Sutta. Uh, the discourse on the all, A-L-L, on everything. And the Buddha says, Bhikkhus, I will teach you the all. Listen to this. And what Bhikkhus is the all, the eye and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odors, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile sensations, the mind and dhammas. Dhammas is sometimes translated as objects of mind. But we need to remember that in the Pali suttas, the terms subject and object don't actually occur. So I'm not sure that's such a helpful translation. The dhammas refer to everything that we are conscious of in our experience, that is not mediated through the physical senses. So in other words, our states of mind, uh, our feelings, 
our emotions, our intuitions, our consciousness, our being aware of being aware of being aware. All of that is uh, dhammas, ideas, concepts, theories, etc. This is called sabha, everything. If anyone, monks, should say, I reject this all, I will make known another all, that would be a mere empty boast on his part. If he were questioned, he wouldn't be able to give an answer. And further, he would find himself with vexation. Why? Because, monks, that all would not be within his domain. In other words, what the Buddha is concerned with is a way of understanding the world, a way of practicing, a way of living that is concerned entirely with what is present to us through the organs of our body, including the organ of the mind, which is aware of things that are not mediated through the senses. But in a way it's rather striking that uh, the emphasis is on the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. The mind is not elevated to some privileged state. It's one-sixth of what it is that constitutes what we call experience. I think we could almost substitute the word experience for the all, which is rather clumsy, or simply life. And yet people feel, well, that can't be enough. There must be more than that. And the Buddha says, well, whatever you posit outside of such experience is not something you'll ever really be able to make any sense out of. You'll get caught up in all kinds of... of, uh, problems, vexations, because such claims about some other reality are not within your domain. Now again, I don't think he's talking here what in, in a language we would call ontological. He's talking very much pragmatically that what his teaching is concerned with is what is experienceable within our sensory and mental life. And that's enough. If we seek mystical experiences or we seek some sort of transcendent experiences, he seems to be saying we're actually looking in the wrong place. In some of the Indian traditions, they talk of this experience as being like an illusion or a veil of illusion behind which lies reality. For the Buddha, there is just appearance. Uh, There's just what is present. There's no uh, sense whatsoever that there's something behind appearances. His vision is what we would call purely phenomenological. Phenomenon, remember in Greek, means that which appears. So we're concerned with simply what is apparent to us. Now that doesn't mean that we can't, in meditation for example, experience things that are not apparent to us now. Of course we can. But when they are experienced, they are also simply what is appearing in those experiences. We don't have to think that there's something beyond, above, behind, below the domain of what we call experience. Another famous passage that I think makes much the same point, um, this is also in the Sanyutta Nikaya 1.26, where he says, It is, friend, in just this fathom-high carcass, endowed with perception and mind, that I make known the world. In other words, he acknowledges that our sense of the world 
is that which is given to us, is made available to us through our body, through our bodily experience, our sensitive, our conscious, our perceptive um, faculties that are made possible within the body. Should be mentioned perhaps how the Buddha understands the word the world. The world in Pali is loka, which is actually a cognate, in other words it has a common root to the English word location. But most people, in England for example, we, we talk about the local, which means the pub. I'm going down the local. People don't realize that they're actually using a Sanskrit word, <laughs> loka. So it is the locomotive, a moving place. But when the Buddha is asked, well, what do you mean by loka, world? He says, lujati, lujati, which in Pali means it passes, it passes. It seems as though he thinks that the word loka and the word lujati, to pass, are actually somehow connected etymologically. Modern scholars tell us that they're not. It doesn't matter. The world is what passes. Now in French, that, I think we get a clearer meaning of what that is about. You would say in French, c'est ce qui se passe, which means it's what's happening. It's what's going by. It's what's slipping away into the past. And so I think the important point with this is to recognize that the world is what's happening. And that doesn't mean the world refers to some place out there and we, a detached observer, somehow are conscious of the world. The world is a totally inclusive idea that refers as much to what's happening within us, our thoughts, our feelings, our perceptions, as well as what's happening outside us. He's not making a subject-object distinction. The world is the process of life unfolding and vanishing. That's what he means by the world. Prior to our split into me, the observer, and the world as the observed, there is just one single seamless unfolding process, which is really what we open up to when we sit and when we walk, and when we let the mind become still, we realize that that duality is really, it's, it's convenient, it's useful, we can orient ourselves to what's going on by using it, but fundamentally, in a, in a pure phenomenological sense, there is no in and out. There's no line dividing the two that this idea of non-duality, which is often raised up to some, uh, you know, some great insight, in fact is actually an account of what's actually happening right now. And this for the Buddha is the world. It's what's happening. It's what's passing. Now another text that I feel is also um, foundational for a secular uh, Buddhism is this one, also from the Sangyutta Nikaya. This is from 3513, which is just shortly before the, shortly after the, um, sorry, shortly before the discourse on the All. When I was still a Bodhisattva, the Buddha says, it occurred to me, now what is the delight of life? What is the del- what is the tragedy of life? And what is the emancipation of life? Then, monks, it occurred to me, the happiness and joy that arise conditioned by life, that is the delight of life. That life is impermanent, dukkha, and changing, that is the tragedy of life. The removal and abandonment of grasping for life, that is the emancipation of life. Only when I understood the delight, the tragedy, and the emancipation of life, did I consider myself to have attained a peerless awakening in this world. 
Now, I've translated uh, this by the term life. We could also have said experience. The actual text goes through what is the delight of the eye, what is the tragedy of the eye, what is the emancipation of the eye, what is the delight of sight, what is the tragedy of sight. What, you see where I'm going. It's a long text. In other words, it corresponds exactly to what the Buddha calls the all. Exactly the same elements. I feel in English, we don't have an equivalent word in Pali for life or experience. I think the meaning comes through much more clearly if we think of this as life or the world or what's happening. What's striking about this passage is that he considered his awakening not to be about having understood how much suffering there is in the world. But he acknowledges that life is made up of, of delight and tragedy and there is the possibility within that delight and tragedy for emancipation. But when you read the translation that is available in Wisdom Publications the, by B.I. Viku Bodhi, it doesn't say this. It says, what is the delight of life? What is the tragedy of life? And what is the emancipation from life? Freedom from the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue. Of, of, from go back to the Pali, the case endings are the same. They're all in the genitive. Of, of, of. So, orthodoxy has thought of emancipation, of liberation, as liberation from life, from birth and death. And its understanding, which is orthodox, I feel has then done a subtle violence to the text because it doesn't say from it says of the Buddha is talking of the emancipation of the senses the emancipation of the mind and it's very clear from this passage that that means emancipation from grasping chandaraga not emancipation from life itself so again although it's a, the difference is between the word of and from. And yet the significance, I feel, is considerable. That we're talking about an emancipation in this life for those who experience delight and who experience tragedy. So in other words, it's a very uh, inclusive and holistic sense of what life includes. It's not a denial that there's any delight nor is it reductively saying it's all tragic. It's both. It embraces the totality of what we all know really as experience. I'm going to come back to that passage. But before doing so, I'd like to uh, look at a passage that um, in some ways is the almost the, the starting point for a secular um, reading, interpretation of the Dhamma. And that's found in the parable of the city. And again, all of these texts are actually clustered around the same uh, section of the, well not quite, but they're all within the Sangyuta Nikaya, the connected discourses. This is from Connected Discourse 12 65. Suppose, monks, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road travelled on by people in the past, and he would follow it and he would come to an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited in the past with parks and groves and ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then the man would inform the king or a royal minister, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path. I followed it and came to an ancient city. Renovate that city, Sire. 
Then the king or royal minister would renovate the city and sometime later it would, it would become successful and prosperous, well populated, attained to growth and expansion. Now when he then goes on to uh, explain what he means by that parable, he says, he says, I too am like a man who's gone into a forest and come across an ancient path and followed it and it's led to an ancient city. And the ancient path is the eightfold path that we've been looking at. And the ancient city are the four and conditioned arising. It's, it's stated rather more complexly than that, but that's what it boils down to. The ancient city is the four, the four noble truths, and the links of dependent origination. Now the question we have to ask, well, what does it mean? In what sense are the four the template of a city? In what sense does the Eightfold Path lead not to, as is usually said, Nibbana, the cessation of suffering, but here the Eightfold Path leads to the Four, leads to conditioned arising. And then the man goes out of the forest, goes to the king and says, let's rebuild this place. In other words, he embarks upon uh, the task of building a city. So you can see there are three phases in this parable. The path, getting to the city, and then setting out to rebuild the city. And that mirrors, in a somewhat uncanny way, the structure of the Buddha's first sermon. Remember the Buddha's first sermon, the turning of the wheel of Dhamma, starts by the Buddha saying, I have found a middle path, and that middle path is the Eightfold Path, one. The Sutta then cuts immediately to, this is Dukkha, this is the arising, this is the ceasing, and this is the path. It arrives, the path leads us to these four. And then, in the third part of the discourse, the Buddha says, it was not until I had, uh, my knowledge and vision were entirely clear about the 12 aspects of these four. In other words, once I had recognized, performed and accomplished four tasks, could I consider myself to be awake? So in other words, he's engaged in an activity, embracing dukkha, letting go of craving, experiencing the stopping of craving and then creating and cultivating a path that he claims to be awake. I don't think this is accidental. It's obscured because tradition doesn't traditionally make that connection, but I find it rather striking. The, the project, therefore, is not a project to fulfill the goals of ancient Indian soteriology, in other words, how we escape from the cycle of birth and death and achieve cessation. But the project is actually a communal project. The man doesn't get to the ancient city and then start building it himself. He goes to the king and he says, let's get the community together, let's organize a rebuilding of this city. This is a communal activity. This is about creating um, something far more complex than any one person could ever achieve. It requires the powers of the day to somehow allow such a project to be undertaken. So we have in, the, in this parable um, a, a preeminently secular image, in other words, an image of the Dhamma as realizing something in this world which is, and we would take this now really metaphorically, that is akin to, that is like the building of another kind of civitas, which is the root of the word civilization. That sounds a bit grandiose perhaps. I would use the word a culture. 
that the the practice of the path and the four the four and conditioned arising these principal ideas is the cultivation of a way of life that gives rise to a culture a culture of awakening we might call it and again not to forget the etymological link between cultivate and culture they're the same root same idea a person who is who cultivates certain virtues becomes cultured and i think this is emerging in a way uh, it's certainly emerging here in 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 north america the emergence of a buddhist culture it's not happening so much in europe buddhism is still a rather more isolated um lots of different groups not having much to do with one another what's amazing in coming to the united states where effectively i work that's where i'm published that's where i'm involved in a lot of the teaching we do i really feel that i'm participating in the emergence of a culture now another thing that is and striking about this metaphor is that it starts with the path that leads to the four the fourth of which is the path which leads to the four the fourth of which is the path so we're describing here very vividly um a process uh, what i've called a positive feedback loop and that that this image illustrates that very very well and it's a loop in the sense that there is actually no starting point and no end point you can jump into this wherever you like it's like a stream at a certain point you'll jump off the bank and that might be through an encounter with dukkha death perhaps like with the buddha or it could be uh, uh, some mystical or deeply spiritual experience you had when you were out in the forest a moment in which your mind your habitual mind stopped it doesn't really matter it can begin anywhere the, the the beginnings and the ends of the path are really arbitrary because what we're describing is something that is like a spiral an ongoing spiral it may be that you enter this spiral through your work through your communication your speech through your thoughts through your meditation anywhere you can enter this spiral it's a way of life it's a way of living each element within it is equally um constitutive and necessary for the whole process so in some ways although i've been presenting the four in terms of embracing suffering leads to the letting go of grasping which leads to the stopping of grasping which leads to the cultivation of a path in some ways all of these elements are somehow interlocked and interfused we could take elsa actually to be a description of each moment i'm giving a talk i try probably fail to embrace the audience the public in this room i try not to simply talk from my desires and fears and aversions and ambitions i try to speak from a place in which those have somehow not stopped or if they haven't stopped they're not determining what i say and in doing so i then speak and communicate and you respond and you can think of this i think in any situation in life there is the embracing the letting go the stillness and the acting or we can think of that in terms of a lifetime or if we wish lifetimes so we're not i feel stuck in thinking of this as some progression of stages along a path that's been clearly mapped out and you have to carefully go through each one but rather we have something here far more fluid and this is again fluidity a fluid selfing a stream but it's also worth bearing in mind 
the the path is not only a stream, but it's also going against the stream. Again, the same word in Pali, sota, sota pati, and pati sotagami. A good instance of the Buddha's uh, playfulness with language. It's a process that in some senses is going to give rise to turbulence. If you imagine a stream flowing into a river that's going in a different direction, what happens? You get eddies, whirlpools, waves. And that, I feel, is often a much more realistic metaphor for how our practice actually unfolds. And I don't think that's a problem. I feel it's often that turbulence that, in a sense, um, stimulates our imagination, stimulates our creativity, uh, stimulates our responsiveness. It's part of our own inner struggle, as it were. Struggle is not a failure, but I think struggle in some ways is an integral part of what is going on. Now, another thing about a city, again, metaphorically, I don't honestly, I mean, it would be silly to think that we go and build some Buddhist city somewhere. But what is it that distinguishes a city from, say, a more, uh, a village-like environment? A city is a higher concentration of people that allows a greater division of labor and the refinement and the development of specific skills. Whereas in a, in a simpler form of society, each person in a way has to somehow engage and produce the same sort of work. Um, the concentration of people, which is a process that was just beginning to happen at the Buddha's time in the history of India, allows for a differentiation of skills a division of labor, so people can focus on becoming philosophers or merchants or, um, or whatever activities, or carpenters or sculptors or whatever it might be. The, the uh, economy of a city uh, is able to um, uh, generate uh, a much greater diversity of human activity. And I wonder if this too isn't reflected in very much the idea of the Eightfold Path, which is again a path that's not just about getting proficient in meditation. It's about seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, working. All of which can become practices. And I don't think we have to privilege certain practices like meditation over others. What's distinctive in this vision is, of course, especially for us in the West, the emphasis on mindfulness and concentration. And that's why we tend to single those out, I think. But in the bigger picture, all of those aspects are what the Buddha calls bhavana, practice, cultivation, bringing something into being. And we do so in a community that... Um, in a way, allows the diversity of those practices to flourish and thereby produce a culture. When you go to Japan, for example, or Tibet, what you notice immediately is how Buddhist imagery and ideas and architecture and forms and teachings and are all somehow an integral part of that Buddhist culture. That's less visible in the West. We haven't really got that yet. But that's one of the, I feel one of the great experiences and virtues of practicing in the East is that you find yourself immersed in a Buddhist culture, warts and all. It's often, you know, there are, there's the shadow side of all that too. But it does impress upon you that Buddhism is not just about being good in meditation. Uh, in Burma, in Thailand, all of these countries, a Buddhist culture is very apparent, sometimes under threat, but it's far more than just um, meditation centers. How that might unfold in our modern society, that is to be seen. I don't know.
So this brings us also to the idea that um, this project is akin to the project of building something. Building, uh, making and creating something. And doing so both individually and in community. It's a, it's a creative project in the literal sense of that word. And in that sense, we can perhaps think of our practice, whether it be meditation or, or speaking or communicating, writing, as in some ways parallel or akin to um, the work of uh, the artist, who likewise begins with the germ of inspiration or intuition that then leads her to form a vision of a work that slowly begins to coalesce in her mind. And then at a certain moment, a mark is made on a piece of paper or a movement is made in a choreographed piece of dance work or a brush stroke or the molding or the shaping of a piece of clay. And that describes very much, I feel, the, the process nature of this practice, one that starts within us but only reaches uh, a conclusion or a completion through its embodiment in something that then exists in the public domain. A book, a painting, a piece of music. This, once again, mirrors, I think, um, the structure of the Eightfold Path itself. I don't think the Buddha presented these eight aspects uh, arbitrarily. Picked these things out of a hat. Clearly we have here a progression. We start with, uh, with samaditi, the way we see the world. And again, he describes that in many different ways. There's no fixed definition. The one we looked at was the one that um, sought to experience a middle way which is not committed to the idea of there is and the idea of there is not. That is samaditi a view of the world that honors the, um, the arising and the ceasing of life in each moment without trying to pin it down or define it in the categories of language or thought. And that gives rise to another way of thinking, another way of making decisions and intentions and choices which give rise to words, which give rise to acts, which give rise to how we then engage in our livelihood. So we see the same uh, sequence as we might understand in the emergence of a piece of art. And rather than thinking of, uh, of this process as something that has to follow the strict defined steps and stages laid out by some school, whether that be what we find in the Vishuddhimaga or in the Lamrim or in the different um, stages of understanding in Zen. And again, that's the habit and the tendency of religious institutions is to try to formalize uh, the practice and that you are successful but if you uh, follow the steps in the right order and achieve what the tradition regards as um, its definition of enlightenment, let's say. I'm not saying that these formulaic processes are worthless. They're not. They're actually very valuable. But for the practice to become our own, we somehow have to go beyond that. Uh, they may be very good training models, that bring us to certain levels of understanding and insight. 
But for the path to become our own, we have to find our own voice. We have to find our own way of expression. Again, that's a phrase that's often used in, in creative writing workshops. Finding your own voice. When you start writing, I think probably many of us have thought, there's a novel in me somewhere, just waiting to get out. And then we take the plunge and we start writing this thing. And very quickly, I would suspect for the vast majority of us, we find that the way we write is actually a kind of copy of our favorite authors. It's derivative. Um, we think it's terribly original and we think our own life story is terribly fascinating. <laughs> but in reality, we tend to produce rather second-rate prose um, in a style that uh, we have basically derived from those we admire. And you then find yourself, and this is be true of playing the piano or painting or anything, is you really then have to train. You have to work and work and work at this process until you get the confidence within yourself that allows you quite naturally to move beyond um, your sub-Ernest Hemingway voice to find your own. And again, there's a great difference between, you know, let's say, piano playing. We can all probably learn, you know, by discipline to play a piano. But very few of us will become Alfred Brendel. In other words, we can play the same notes, follow the same score, but it takes a quality of a certain genius and a freedom to be able to bring new life and insight into that performance. So once again, I think the, the metaphor of the artist or the musician, the writer, is a very good one for um, uh, this practice. We need the training. We need to go through the discipline of learning how to do these things. And it might be rather boring, in fact. But it's only by doing that do we internalize these skills uh, sufficiently to make them our own, to become aparapatsaya, independent of others, and thereby find our own voice, our own style, our own um, way of doing it. And this is just as much, I think, the case in uh, a so-called spiritual practice as it is in, in an artistic practice. The very word the Buddha uses for the, the, the activity, the task, uh, in relation to the path is, is, is to cultivate the path. It's not that the path is something one day that just lies there ahead of us and all we have to do is stroll along it. No, that's a, that image actually deceives us. It tricks us. Because the path in in reality, is something that we're constantly having to bring into being. That's what bhavana means. Bhava means being, bhavana means to bring or to allow into being. So when we say we're, we're practicing a path, it means really that we are, we're bringing a path into being. We're, and as I mentioned, I think, before, a path is an empty space that is free of obstacles and hindrances that prevent us from moving and flowing freely towards our goals. The goals we looked at already, awakening, the Dhamma, the Sangha, that, that's the framework within which the path unfolds. A path is a, a purposive and free space that we cultivate within us in all areas of our life. And in this sense, we can understand that the raw materials of this art are our own five ag aggregates, as it's rather clumsily called, 
the, the, our physical existence, our emotional existence, our perceptions, our inclinations, our feelings, our awareness, our consciousness, all of these are the, uh, the clay that we mold and shape and form in the process of this practice. Again, it's an image that's quite akin to some sort of artistic process. And again, this is uh, found in this famous verse that I cite all the time, Dhammapada, Dhammapada verse 80, just as a farmer irrigates his field, a fletcher fashions an arrow, a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, Atanam Dhammatipandita, the wise person tames the self. We've looked at the image of the farmer in the field. But here I think the, the pertinent image is that of a carpenter shaping a piece of wood. Uh, that's a metaphor the Buddha uses to describe our own practice. And what it is that is equivalent to the piece of wood is the atta, the self, you, in other words, and me. All that we are this process of um, physical, emotional, perceptual, uh, intentional, conscious experience, what we might call the all, the world that's happening, that is what we shape and form in a similar way to a carpenter or a sculptor, we might say, uh, fashions a piece of an uncarved block of wood. So in a sense, what we're doing is not, um, uh, in a sense, seeking to sort of free ourselves from our attachment to something, but rather to open up our experience such that we can begin to shape and form it in a particular way. So that's one way of thinking of the practice as a as a creative project or a task. But I think also, if we pursue this idea of the practice being an art, this leads us into the question of aesthetics, the questions of the beautiful or the sublime even. If we go back to the passage that... Um, that I cited before. Then, because it occurred to me, the happiness and joy that arise conditioned by life, that is the delight of life. That life is impermanent, a dukkha and changing, that is the tragedy of life. The removal and abandonment of grasping for life, that is the emancipation of life. Now here we have um, a sense that, that as we proceed, we become more attuned both to what is delightful in experience and also what is tragic. And the two are not necessarily separate. It's not, I mean, we, we think of them that way. But I feel that particularly when we are in the presence of great art, whether that be music or painting or literature, what moves us and what we value in that aesthetic experience is precisely the fact that we discover a deep source of, of, of joy in a way, or enjoyment. It's a very positive experience. We, uh, we, we, we deeply value it. And yet at the same time, it's almost invariably revealing to us the tragic nature of our condition. Take, for example, going to watch Hamlet or Macbeth or King Lear or reading the great Russian novelists or listening to the, particularly the later works of Beethoven or Schubert, for example. 
this is not um, uh, just about entertainment at all, but it's about um, uh, being having revealed to us something very deeply true about our human condition, about dukkha, basically. And yet it doesn't make us gloomy and morbid and depressed. In fact, it elevates us. The same, I think, is very true of the whole practice of embracing dukkha. There's, um, there's a lovely passage again in the Sanyuta Nikaya where the Buddha says, I do not say that the breakthrough to the fore is accompanied by suffering and pain. And remember, the first of the four is suffering. But I do not say that the breakthrough to the fore is accompanied by suffering and pain. It's only accompanied by happiness and joy. This sounds, at first sight, somehow contradictory. That embracing dukkha leads not to more dukkha. And again, people often criticize Buddhism. Oh, it's all about everything. Life is miserable. <laughs> But the paradox is when you embrace it, it actually transforms it without denying it. In fact, the more you go into the heart of it, the greater the beauty and the sublimity of experience unfolds. When I meditated for a long time as a Tibetan Buddhist monk on death, it actually had the effect of making me far more acutely aware of life. By denying death, you actually close yourself off to life. The two are not separable. But life and death are utterly inseparable. Uh, Heidegger, who's been a great influence on my thinking, talks of life as uh, being towards death, hyphenated. Zum Todesein, being towards death. In other words, our life is constantly, as in a stream, running out <clears throat> entropically. The world is entropically running out, heading towards its own end. The universe, or let's say the solar system, the, the sun, is burning itself out. And that's not some horrible disaster that makes us feel that life is not worth living, it actually awakens us to the potentialities and the extraordinary fact that we're here at all. So embracing dukkha is not only about, as it were, getting a better understanding of dukkha, which it is, it's also very much about embracing a more uh, empathetic relationship to life, as the more that we open ourselves to dukkha, we become sensitized to the dukkha of others. In other words, our experience becomes more empathetic. We feel the pain of the other. And also, I think embracing dukkha is an aesthetic experience. In other words, it reveals to us the, the sheer beauty and grandeur of life itself. I prefer the word sublime, much in the way that you find in Coleridge and Wordsworth and Keats, uh, who sought experiences of the sublime by going into, I mean, Coleridge typically would go to the Lake District when there's a really nasty storm on, he put a bottle of laudanum in one pocket, a bottle of brandy in the other, and climbed to the top of the hill. And uh, in the pouring rain and the howling gales. And, and the, uh, they described the sublime as, um, in fact, Coleridge describes it as something like um, suspending the power of comparison. Um, Keats talks about it as negative capability. 
when a man, this is Keats' definition, when a man is capable of resting in uncertainty and doubts without er any irritable reaching after fact or reason, which is a wonderful description of meditation, basically. And, and the sublime is that which, in a sense, exceeds one's capacity for representation. It's both fascinating and terrifying at the same time. And so the aesthetic experience of the sublime is really trying to open ourselves to the natural world or to art, whatever, in a way that brings the mind to a stop. We, we just can't handle it anymore. And that, I feel, is um, a consequence of um, embracing dukkha, embracing the, you know, the totality of the world of our life in a contemplative, a focused and still way. And I suspect many of us, even on this retreat, may have found that as you, if you have a, a very still and focused uh, sitting in here, when you walk outside, the, the grasses and the trees and the colors and the textures and the smells are somehow enriched, somehow enlivened, somehow uh, deeply fascinating. And you can spend, you know, just walking and sitting opens you up to this perspective, which is far deeper than the habitual run of the mind's likes and dislikes and ambitions and memories and fears. This is all about opening ourselves to uh, the sublimity of dukkha. And once we, I feel, feel more attuned and at home in such a world, the pettiness of grasping and craving simply has nowhere to, it's just, it's, it doesn't have any kind of hold on us anymore. And we are able to, in a way, get to a point of stopping. But of course, the point of stopping is in order to be able to start again from another uh, depth or dimension or perspective within our lives. One of the things that uh, I've greatly valued uh, by living for four years in a Zen monastery in Korea was that the arts were integrated into the practice. Uh, Indian-based Buddhist traditions tend to subordinate the arts to the practice. In other words, it's about iconography, it's about devotional imagery that somehow um, is in the service of some higher religious goal. And they can be very beautiful works of art, I don't dispute that. But the artist is usually not a monk or someone who's committed to deep practice, but rather usually a lay person. Whereas in, in Zen, in Chan, because of the fact that when Buddhism went into China, it began to enter into this dialogue with you know, a, a highly cultivated society one that had its own literary, artistic traditions, philosophical traditions. And it's out of that dialogue that there emerged what we now know as Zen painting, Zen art, and so on, which, again, has often become rather formalized. But the, uh, but the uh, lived experience in a Chan monastery, a Zen monastery, um, incorporates... Um, becoming proficient in the arts as much as it does in the practice of Zen. Uh, you find ex famous expressions like the taste of Zen and the taste of tea, which is one of the arts, is one. There's an integration there. And that, I feel, is an element that, um, for myself, is very much a, an integral part of this practice the creative process, the, um, the, the opening up to the dimension of, of beauty and the engagement with practices that, um, in a sense, seek to capture or communicate in some artistic form 
that experience that we uncover in our practice. And this may lead, perhaps, um, in a secular approach to the Dhamma, to what I've called in one essay I wrote, a democracy of the imagination. That um, the, the imaginative arts are not somehow controlled by some orthodox religion or some particular school of painting or art, but somehow the practice itself includes um, the cultivation of the imagination as the kind of intermediary zone between our most solitary intuitions and the translation and transformation of those intuitions through the imagination into words, into acts, into forms of life, into works of art. So that's um, where we'll stop today. And in fact, that is actually the end. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay, thank you. So there's walking and then sitting and... uh, Where are we today? Is this the the closing day schedule? Okay. Uh, Yeah, everything's the same until uh, 3.45 where we'll... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.